My name's Tom Switzer. Welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. It's a great pleasure to see you all here today. Um, the CIS, for those of you who don't know who we are, we're a free market, small government, centre-right think tank, uh, but we're not a partisan outfit. Uh, we're very much committed to, some might say, the ideals that uh, Fightback represented 25 years ago. Um, some have said to me, why on earth would you recognise uh, this election 25 years ago? Why the 1993 election? And during the week, I received an email from one of our uh, supporters, Mark McFarlane, and I just want to read out to you what he says Fight Back meant to him uh, in 1992, 1993. Now, at the time, Mark, like me, was in his early 20s, and he says, this is what Fight Back meant to me as a 22-year-old growing up in the suburbs of Melbourne. In 1991, on my way to job interviews in the city of Melbourne, I walked past buildings with advertising signs that read 40,000 square feet to rent. The job market looked bleak. The recession we had to have put my father out of work in the manufacturing industry. Victoria was once again a rust belt. Fightback arrived in my life like a bolt of lightning to give me hope. Hope of freedom from the collectivism beloved of the unions, hope and inspiration for the individual. Mark goes on to say, it was all in the title, Fight Back, the antidote to a narrow and unsustainable tax base, an inflexible market for employment, a health system without market signals that will consume the entirety of the narrowing tax base with an ageing population, an inflexible workplace with union control of freedom of employment and involvement at the centre of government. Mark goes on to say, those 650 pages might have been the epitaph of the longest suicide note in Australian political history. And yet, far from death in 1993, Fight Back set the policy agenda and the battleground for Australian politics during the next 15 years. Important elements of Fight Back have been implemented. We have a GST, although not as broad as it should be. Union influence in the economy has been wound back, although it is now on the march. For a small period, income tax retreated, but is once again a dissentive. Smaller government and market signals in health remain battlegrounds. Mark concludes, one of the authors might have retreated and said that fight back was dead and buried, but it lives. And those political convictions live on for those to whom fight back gave hope. In 2018, after 10 years of federal nihilism, Fightback has the capacity to inspire another generation. And that, my friends, is why we're here today. We have a terrific panel to weigh into these issues and the lessons of the 1993 election. The first, of course, is John Hewson. John was the opposition Liberal Party in 1993. Of course, he'd been the Liberal leader from 1990 to 1994. Uh, ever since, he's been a prominent company director uh, leading climate change enthusiast uh, and, of course, has appeared in the media, Fairfax, the ABC and Sky News. Dr John Hewson. <laughs> Paul Kelly is arguably this nation's most distinguished journalist. Um, in uh, 1993, he, of course, was the uh, editor-in-chief of The Australian. He was the editor-in-chief for the best part of a decade throughout the 1990s. He is, uh, has since been the editor-at-large of the Australians since 1997-98. Uh, uh, 
um, columns on Wednesdays and Saturdays, never to be missed. He's written many award-winning books, but the most important book for our purposes today, of course, is The End of Certainty. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Kelly. Miranda Devine is one of Australia's most read columnists. She's at the uh, Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Telegraph, News Corp a columnist. She's also the host of Miranda Live, which is the Daily Telegraph, very popular podcast. This week, she's interviewed the prominent Canadian intellectual Jordan Peterson, not just once, but twice. Miranda Devine. <laughs> and Troy Bramson is also with The Australian. He's a columnist there, must reading on Tuesdays. Um, he's also a prolific historian and author of many books on the Labor Party history, most notably the biography on Paul Keating, Troy Bramson. Um, John, let me start by uh, asking you the first question. It's been uh, 25 years since the 1993 election. Uh, in that time, have you managed to work out how a GST applies to a cake. <laughs> Depends on the type of cake. <laughs> but seriously, what motivated you in 1991, recession we had to have, 10% unemployment, million people out of work, putting forward such a bold, ambitious, politically transparent document like Fightback? Well, a number of things motivated me. I mean, I got involved in politics in the 70s reluctantly. I was a visiting economist and then appointed to a senior position in the Reserve Bank. And um, I was asked by Phil Lynch to come down and be his economic advisor. Um, I went through the interview process and um, when I finished the interview, I said that the answer would be no. And he said, why? I said, well, I didn't uh, do four university degrees in economics and waste nine years of my life to waste it on a politician. <laughs> so he didn't like that very much. <laughs> and, um, you know, but I was saying something quite serious, that I, you know, really did believe that good policy would be good politics with a relatively short lag. And I needed to see some legitimate reason why I should mm. give up a senior bureaucratic position to take one in a minister's office. And uh, so Lynch's response was quite interesting because he knew from papers I'd written in the Reserve Bank that I thought we had to start moving towards a floating currency and the place to begin was to start managing the exchange rate on a daily basis against the trade-weighted index. So he gave me a piece of paper and a pen, said, there's my desk, I want you to write me a one-page, and everything for Phil was on one page, one-page cabinet submission as to why we should do that. And of course, in the 76 devaluation, that's what they did. Mm. And then he said, see, policy's made in there, in that room. And you can have all the ideas you like in the Reserve Bank. I never see most of them because they never get out of Treasury. In those days, they came through Treasury. Mm. So I had that history. Secondly, when I, um, and I'd been Shadow Minister and Shadow, Shadow Treasurer and Shadow Finance Minister prior to 1990, but uh, taking over the leadership, which again, I did by default in a sense, because it was quite clear to me that Howard was going to run again and another round of Howard versus Peacock I thought would be totally counterproductive. Mm -hmm. So um, my first speech to the party room, I made uh, three or four key points. One was, well, I said basically we needed to do three things. We needed to re-establish the unity within the Liberal Party and between the Liberal Party and the National Party, a lot of which had been lost in the previous ten years. Secondly, we needed to re-establish policy credibility. 
And I used specific arguments, 87, uh, Howard's tax package didn't add up. He double counted some revenue. And in 1990, Andrew couldn't remember the health policy. And we'd come out of that, that process of elections really without any policy credibility at all. And the third thing was in terms of the party organisation, it wasn't an effective campaigning force on the ground against the Labor Party. It was still pretty an, an, an anachronistic structure of the mid-1940s. And um, so I said, they're the three things I want to do. I want to do it in the context of a, an objective for Australia, yeah. that we should uh, be able to play something of a leadership role by the year 2000, this was 1990, in the year 2000. And all policies should be developed against that objective. And then I said, yeah, unfortunately, I think it might take us six years to do it. Yeah. So we'd go hard for three, but um, so that was the background. And the circumstances you mentioned, uh, I thought, required a dramatic policy response. What about the intellectual origins of this revolution? I mean, all revolutions have intellectual origins. You told the Western Australian Liberals in June of 1992 uh, uh, that. Um, that uh, the most you promised them the most significant revolution that this country has seen in decades. Um, what were the ideological origins of this revolution that you proposed? Well, I've never been one to believe much in a particular ideology. I don't think in terms of labels, right, left, conservative, not conservative. I don't have never never applied that to myself. Uh, and uh, I've never taken a particular view that I've got to do everything consistent with what would be seen as a right mm. position or a left position or whatever. And uh, well, What so about the people like Friedman, uh, uh, Milton Friedman or Frederick Hayek? I mean, th no, th they, they were I, very I read them all the and I took no what I thought was relevant out of each of them. Right. But uh, I formed my own views as to what mattered. Okay. Now, Paul, uh, you were obviously uh, present at all of this. Uh, uh, drama. Um, you had distinguished yourself as one of the leading Canberra Press Gallery journalists who championed the economic reform agenda, tariff cuts, competition policy, deregulation of the financial markets, all that. Um, what was your feeling about Fight Back when it came out in 91-92? When Fight Back came out, the Australian uh, gave it uh, a pretty good rap. Um, essentially what we thought, and I think this is what John Hewson thought as well, this was a chance to seize the moment. Uh, there was an opportunity to get a pretty fundamental change in Australia's direction. Uh, fight back was audacious, utopian, radical, uh, very risky in political terms, but essentially, essentially the idea was there was a chance to get a pretty big change in the national direction. And when the document first came out, uh, we embraced it uh, pretty enthusiastically. Uh, of course, as time went on, uh, the longer fight back sat on the table, the more people looked at it, the more people assessed it, um, the more support for fight back eroded. But you, you, you continued the paper's support for the principles of fight back right through to 93? Well, uh, our editorial the day before the 1993 election endorsed 12. Yep. the 12th of March, mm -hmm. Friday the 12th of March, 1993. Uh, we said, uh, the best way to maximise progress for economic reform is to give a coalition government the chance to implement its ambitious agenda. So we endorsed a change of government. We did, however, say 
that um, if Dr. Hewson wins, he will face a daunting challenge. It will be his task not just to secure a more efficient economy, but to couple this with an ongoing commitment to social justice and our egalitarian tradition. But in short, we are endorsed a change of government. Right, right. Um, Miranda, uh, if you go back to January, early February of 1993, around the time that Paul Keating called the election, uh, the unemployment rate was between 8 and 10%, uh, a million people out of work, the most people out of work since the Great Depression. Um, uh, I wonder um, why then did the coalition lose? <laughs> yeah, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? But I think in a way that because people were uh, hurting, um, they were more risk averse. And Paul Keating did such a clever job of framing um, his enormous scare campaign about this monster tax that um, when you coupled that with the fact that the coalition didn't seem to be able to explain the tax and that symbolic moment when John uh, was being quizzed by Mike Willisey about, you know, would a cake, current affair. yeah, would cake, would a cake be cheaper or more expensive under the GST? And John gave, you know, a learned sort of explanation of why he couldn't really answer that without more information. But he'd lost the audience by then, and um, and then the other problem was these rallies um, that John was doing, which. I guess at the beginning they seemed to be a good idea to be showing that there was a huge groundswell of support for a change of government, which there was. No one liked Paul Keating. But um, but the Labor then very cleverly got all their union bother boys uh, to stack these rallies and fight with the Tories, you know, violent clashes, which just on television gave this impression to the public that um, what John Hewson was doing was bringing in division and, uh, you know, violent clashes into the country. And so that scared people off again. So I think those two things crystallised the fears that people had and it was really ironic because I know only just a week out from the election that John was preferred Prime Minister by five or six points over Paul Keating. So nobody really wanted Paul Keating but he was just so clever in mounting that scare campaign. Yeah, John, I remember uh, just quickly um, in the 93 campaign, there was a rally and someone pelted you with an egg and you actually caught it and it didn't break. <laughs> remember that? I, I, I told the media it said I'd been practising. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't going to give me too much credit for anything. Okay. Now, Troy, you have an interesting thesis. Your argument is that several myths dog the 93 election. How so? Uh, thanks, Tom. Look, I mean, the, the context for this is really important. I mean, Paul Keating was the most unpopular Prime Minister in modern history. He had a 21% approval rating uh, when, he, when he became Prime Minister at the end of 1991. There'd been a divisive leadership fight with Bob Hawke. Um, I think the axe man's hand had been stayed at the 1990 election with uh, record high interest rates. And of course, unemployment was very high. So the election was there to be won uh, for the coalition. John Hewson was very popular. Um, the Liberal Party and the National Party were very united. Um, the media support for the coalition was unprecedented and still remains to, to this day. Out of the 14 daily newspapers in 1993, 13 of them recommended a vote for John Hewson and the coalition. The only newspaper that didn't was the Daily Telegraph. Um, quite interesting. <laughs> So it seemed impossible. Paper. That's right. <laughs> it seemed impossible to lose. 
Um, but they did lose, and Keating won a fifth election victory for Labor, which has never been matched since. He increased his vote um, and seats as well. So it's it was a smashing. I mean, it was a comprehensive demolition um, of the coalition by, by any measure. Uh, there was only one or two not all that well-known journalists in the press gallery who predicted that Keating would win. Um, all the big guns, including some sitting on this panel, said that John Hughes would win easily. Uh, it would be a landslide. Um, I found an in interview with um, with former Prime Ministers John Gordon, Malcolm Fraser and Bob Hawke, who also all predicted that John Hewson would win the election. Um, I think in terms of some of the myths, look, um, Fightback was always, almost always very popular. Um, and, the, and the Liberal National Party was ahead in the polls almost all the way right through to the 1993 election and John Hewson was always preferred Prime Minister. Um, to give you an idea of the, of the gulf um, after Fightback was released, um, the Liberal National Party had a primary vote of 50% in news poll. Labor's primary vote was 32%. Mm. Um, what Fightback didn't kill Keating, but it killed Bob Hawke, and that's one of the important things to remember. December 1991. Yeah, Hawke's response to Fightback um, for the year or more before he was uh, dumped as Labor leader was very ineffective. Um, Hawke actually continued to promise a detailed Treasury analysis of the document um, rather than um, striking at it from a political point of view, which is what, which is what Keating did. Um, a couple of other quick myths. Look. Um, I don't think the Labor Party won the election just because they ran an effective negative campaign or a scare campaign. From, from the Labor perspective, and this is borne out in the polling, what Fightback represented was an attack on things like Medicare, because bulk billing would end for almost everybody except a pensioner or a concession card holder. And Medicare is sacrosanct in this country. We've seen that recently. Any party that promises to mess with Medicare will be punished by the voters. The other thing Fightback did was promise to um, um, radically overhaul the industrial relations system and abolish all awards. Uh, and that was that also struck deep um, into what Labor had done with the Accord um, and also in terms of their, their base. Um, in Keating's True Believers speech, he did actually acknowledge, contrary to myth, that um, the negative campaign had played a part in the victory. And he said he hoped that next time round, the victory would be 100% due to Labor's policy. So Keating, I think, understood that um, as well. And just to finish up, look, a couple other things. Fight, fight back wasn't completely junked. Um, the Coalition and Labor both adopted a number of policies from it, including on climate change and infrastructure and privatisation. Climate change in 1993? Yeah, climate change was a, was a part of Fightback, promised to, to cut back on emissions um, in the economy. Um, that's often... That's often forgotten. Twenty percent was it? Well, there you go. That's 20 a big twenty percent emissions cut. <laughs> yeah, by two thousand. So that that's often forgotten. And finally, Tom, the other point I noted was, uh, yet yet the political impact was was conti continued to linger um, after the nineteen ninety three election. And Paul Keating, what he used to do was he kept a copy of Fight Back in the drawer of his desk in the House of Representatives, but he stuck an Acme sticker on it. Um, for those who remember Wiley Coyote from the Roadrunner cartoon, oh. uh, a document that he said would always self-destruct and so he loved to pull it out and show it um, in the middle of question time. Um, and the other one obviously is that the Liberal and National Party got smarter on politics um, and John John Howard in particular um, was essentially a small target at the 1996 well, the election. Hindsight is a wonderful thing and uh, not surprisingly in the months after the, uh, the 1993 election senior Liberals came out saying that this was too ambitious a policy. Let's hear from Michael Kroger 
and uh, Peter Costello. The opposition leader has already signalled a softer line on spending cuts, taking food out of the GST and abandoning tax cuts for the wealthy. I don't know how many times I have to say it, fight back was always going to have some changes. Look, he discovered his heart when he discovered fear in it. We've decided not to tax food. John Hewson, what do you make of those criticisms now, 25 years later? Well, it's always easy to be wise after the event. I mean, um, I was looking for quite radical reform, there's no doubt. It, our strategy was to have a detailed policy position on every single public policy issue. And that's where the focus has been on the GST. It's been mentioned environment. You can go right through that document. Mm. And the idea was that we'd have a detailed policy position. There are only two we didn't take a formal position on, and that was native title and the republic, both of which were not then issues, but they were to become issues in the course of the, the next uh, couple of years. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, there's a fair bit gets rewritten about these things. I knew that it was a, a big call. Okay, so I did something that hadn't been done before, and that was to say to the party room that you will have two full days to analyse the detail of this document. My requirement is that you keep it absolutely secret, mm. Chatham House rules. You can say whatever you like, we can debate whatever you like, and we went two full days. At the end of the two full days, I asked them to vote mm. and uh, conspicuously vote. And um, it was a unanimous decision that this was an attempt worth making. Everyone recognised it was big and that it was going to be a big challenge. I mean, there's so much focus on the GST. In our daily polling, which we did saturation polling of you know, several thousand people per key marginal seat, the GST started to fade as an issue about 10 days out, 8 to 10 days out, and health became a very big issue. And there was a very effective scare campaign on health saying that if mum takes her kids to the doctor, a couple of kids to the doctor, it'll cost her $90. Nothing in the policy about that at all. But those leaflets and news stories and so on went into the key marginal seats and they were the seats that really saw the turn, in my view. But, 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 you know, um, but Paul, I mean, a lot of the reforms that Hawke and Keating and that were supported by the Liberal opposition from 83 onwards, uh, they were deemed as radical. Economic rationalism is how they were derided. Mm. Uh, this was the end of certainty, as you put it in your award-winning book. John's position, John Houston's positions, essentially accelerated those policies. Um, why, we, why, why, uh, why the backlash? Given that it I worked so think, well for Hawke. I don't think fight back is a matter of degree. Um, uh, fight back is different conceptually altogether. Um, fight back was a philosophical document attempting to redirection the country and as John said it went to every uh, particular area of public policy um, so this wasn't just a few reform policies here and there this was uh, the sort of fundamental and comprehensive philosophical reconception of the country that probably we'd never seen at any election before and we won't see at any election since for a very long period of time. Uh, and it proved too much for the country. The country had recently been in recession. Um, and I think there were two consequences. Uh, one was that the Liberal Party reassessed and decided that it would remain committed to a number of reforms but it would be a pragmatic party. Mm. 
and that's what Howard and Costello did. So they won a number of elections, uh, they governed for four terms, and they introduced a series of reforms. And that, by and large, I think, was a period of successful government. The second conclusion I would draw, uh, obviously in retrospect, is that it was in the interests of the Liberal Party to lose uh, the 1993 election because the agenda was never feasible in government. And I think it would have led to um, uh, a tale of woe and division. Uh, I think there's no way uh, the country would have, would have accepted uh, this fight back agenda at all. Um, and so I think it would have set back the cause of economic reform very substantially, essentially, as I said, because of its utopian and radical nature. Mm. It was too much in contradiction to the Australian character. Now's as good a time as any to acknowledge uh, here this evening uh, the Honourable Nick Reiner. Now, Nick was the Premier of New South Wales from 1988 to 1992, and of course a good chunk of that period overlapped with the, the fight back period. Uh, Nick was also a leading proponent of economic reform, not just in this state, but around the country. So Nick, thank you so much for being here. Can I just make a personal comment? I mean, it, always these things come back to your own personal experiences and motivations and, and so on. And obviously I'd spent a lot of time as a trained economist. Mm. And in the early 70s, I worked extensively in the IMF at a tumultuous time where the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates had collapsed. We were, you know, oil prices had been quadrupled. We were moving into a world of stagflation, um, you know, unheard of consequences of those, that sort of disruption compared to the stability of low inflation, low unemployment, strong growth of the whole post-war period. And I came back to Australia and I was struck by just how uncompetitive we were, how insular we were, how inward-looking we were, how... how um, you know, uh, we had uh, centralised wage determination, we had very high tariff levels, and here the world was globalising rapidly yeah, yeah. and moving to floating currencies. And there was an inevitability that we had to somehow change the whole nature of Australian society, part of which was, of course, the economy. And so my judgement was that I pushed very hard through the Fraser government years yeah. for financial sector deregulation on the basis that I thought once you got away from politicians setting interest rates and exchange rates and so on, and they were more or less market determined. The banks were opened up, bank, foreign banks were licensed, uh, the currency was floated. Then it would be inconceivable that you could maintain very high levels of tariff mm. protection, that you could maintain centralised wage determination, that you could neglect the failings of, uh, of infrastructure, social and economic infrastructure. And that was my main personal motivation. And that was what I tried to put into fight back in, a mech, in an integrated policy yeah. package. And these were the views also of the so-called liberal dries mm. in the mid to late 1970s, led by the f likes of Peter Schack and... Tim and, Carlton. And, yep, yeah, and... Um, um, mm. John Hyde. Mm. Uh, you mentioned Malcolm Fraser. Let's, let's hear from Malcolm Fraser. This was what ha Fraser said about fight back in 1994. Um, Menzies wouldn't have recognised the policies. He wouldn't have recognised the party. <laughs> That's from a man, Malcolm Fraser, whose period of government will not be remembered for policy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Troy, um, Paul Kelly in his excellent book, The End of History, talks about traditional sentimentalists on both the left and the right that were very much averse to reform. 
Um, what do you what do you make of um, what John Hewson was trying to do to the Liberal Party and the Liberal tradition in those era, in that in that period? Well, I, th I, th I think it was quite a departure. I mean, remember the last Liberal government had been Malcolm Fraser's government, so it, it was obviously quite a significant departure there. Um, and also, uh, the Labor Party, obviously under Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, had already introduced a lot of very significant economic reforms, whether it's floating, floating the dollar or um, the, the deregulation of the financial markets, um, bringing down the tariff wall. Um, so all of these things had started to happen or, or had happened, and um, I guess Fightback was moving in another another direction, um, but not completely in that same direction because it was so it was so broad. Um, and there are many many elements of Fightback across across the board. Whether you go to a, a very dry economic policy or a very uh, um, wet um, social policy, say climate change, for example, um, um, where the Liberal Party haven't gone down that path. So um, we like to deride Malcolm Fraser, but in many ways he's he's right in the sense that the Liberal Party hadn't been there before, um, and they certainly haven't been back there since. Okay, well, in late 1992, and this doesn't get mentioned enough, the, the political cycle started to change a bit. Keating was gnawing away at John Hewson's leadership and uh, the fight-back strategy, and, and the doubts started to emerge, um, so much so that uh, John Hewson presided over what was regarded at the time as the biggest U-turn in Australian political history. So have we learned anything about leadership changes, Miranda? <laughs> well, look, uh, I, I think, to be fair uh, to John on this election, we should point out what Andrew Robb pointed out after the defeat, which was that if 1,500 voters had changed their minds in a few select seats, the um, you know he would have been Prime Minister and we would be saying what a brilliant triumph it was to show the electorate exactly what your policy prescriptions were. And there would have been no John Howard um, and maybe there would have been no Rudd Gillard Rudd uh, Abbott Turnbull turnover. Um, I think the root of all that problem was really um, caused by John Hewson because his arrival on the scene as this clean skin non-politician just um, shook Bob mm. Hawke to his core and he was already weakened and had a weak treasurer in John Kerrin because Paul Keating had spent the last couple of years on this guerrilla war against him. So um, when John arrived um, he he you know he, he was almost too successful fight back and John Hewson were too successful too early because they did dispatch Bob Hawke and then you had Paul Keating who um, you know I, I think what you can learn what the Liberals ought to have learned from this is that Labor treats with respect the art of politics much more than the Liberals do and Paul Keating was, you know, he, he cut his teeth in the toughest political battlefield around, and that was New South Wales Labor right, Young Labor. And so he was a political killer. And John has just said, you know, he had four degrees. He'd spent his time sharpening his brain um, and in much milder, more gentle environments in academia and banks and so on in the back rooms of the Fraser uh, 
government. And so he was really no match for Keating. And Keating came onto the stage as this new leader with blood on his hands. And I'm not saying that John didn't want to win and didn't put his all into it, but for Keating it was life or death because not only if he lost the election would he be a loser, but he would be much worse. He would be a Labor traitor because he'd brought down the most successful Prime Minister they'd ever had, who'd won four elections and who deserved better than what Keating had done. Mm. So if Keating didn't win that election, it would be all over for him. The problem is, because he won that election, he basically sanctioned, gave a mandate to anybody in the future who wanted to bring down a sitting Prime Minister, no matter how successful. Um, it, it, because he was rewarded. Labor was rewarded with an extra term. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, John, John, I was going to say, respond to that, but also respond to this argument, because your disdain for politics was clearly originally an asset. But were you naive to think, in retrospect, to think that politics would not get you in the end? Yes. I mean, I have no doubt I w didn't go into the business to be political. I mean, and you can easily say that I was politically naive and I should have taken more account of the politics of what I was trying to do. I tended to think, as I said at the start, that good poli poli policy would be good politics with a relatively short lag. There's very one in very instructive anecdote. See, when I was leader of the opposition, or indeed when I was shadow treasurer and shadow finance minister, I saw my role more to be constructive than destructive in the sense that, sure, if I disagreed with the government, I thought they were doing something wrong, I would argue a very strong case against it. I'd also thought that we could get out in front and set the mandate, set the agenda to which they could uh, make it easy for them to govern. So we argued things like increasing interest rates faster to avoid the inevitable recession, the one I was told subsequently we, didn't, we needed to have. I didn't think we, I thought we could have avoided it, mm. and um, you know, and so many decisions like that. Ke Keating used to call me Captain Zero because I was arguing the case for zero tariff protection over time, which allowed him to bring them down quite dramatically and and uh, you know get no resistance. And so the ins the instructive anecdote was the day after we went back to Parliament. Um, you know, on the first day back into Parliament after the '93 election, we go from the lower house to the upper house. Uh, shake the Governor-General's hand on the way through the main hall. And then, of course, the Governor-General reads the State of the Nation address uh, of the new government. And as we walked through, Keating went through first to meet the Governor-General, I went second. He called me aside, took me aside behind one of the pillows, and he said, how are you? I said, oh, I'm fine. He said, oh, you must feel terrible. He said, I beat you. I said, no, I didn't think I could beat you, but I did beat you. You must feel shocking. I said, well, you know, if I stick around, we'll have it again because, you know, you lied to get there and, you know, <laughs> you won't be able to deliver the tax cuts sort of thing. No, no, he said, stop it. He said, I just want to apologise to you. He said, I called you some pretty terrible things. Jeez. And he said, um, you know, I just want you to know that I had the greatest respect for you and if uh, you'd beat me, I could have accepted that. And I said, oh, really? He said, yes. And then he said the t most telling thing. You've got to understand, John, that to me, politics is just a game. And I'll say I'll do whatever I have to to win. And that was the first time I personally, as dumb as I was and as naive as I was, had ever thought of politics as a game. Mm. I thought government was all about, you know, actually delivering outcomes and solving problems and so on. And ever since then, to me, politics has just become more and more of a game, mm -hmm. more and more short-term, more and more opportunistic, more and more populist, more and more negative. My ex-press secretary made it particularly negative. 
you know, these sort of things have, have changed the nature of the business dramatically. Yeah. And so to have a, a sensible, to propose something sensibly in policy today and, and uh, expect a, a mature and informed debate yeah. about it is very, very difficult. I want to skip the next video and we'll go to the next video because that's very relevant to what John was just saying. In early 1992, Paul Keating had given a speech to the press club where he slammed Fightback and um, there was a question time. Let's go to that question time from early 1992. The Leader of the Opposition. Oh, thanks, thanks, Mr Acting Speaker. Order. 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 The Leader of the Opposition has the call. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, Mr. Acting Speaker. I refer the Prime Minister to his hopeless attack on Fightback at um, the press club today. Order. The, leader, ask, the leader will get to the question. I ask the Prime Minister, if you are so confident about your view of Fightback, why won't you call an early election? Because, mate. Order. The, the answer is, mate, mate, because I want to do you slowly. I want to do you slowly. No, no. I know. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. No, no. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. And on the psychological battle stakes, we are stripped down and ready to go. Ready to go. It's interesting, isn't it? Because he also said that the member for Wentworth was uh, like a lizard on a rock, alive but looking dead. Um, that was so, the nicest thing. <laughs> that's the nicest thing he said. So just, just I'm intrigued by this relationship with Keating. There's another side to Keating that the public didn't see. Um, what's the nature of your relationship like with him these days, especially given that your position on social and cultural issues more or less has overlapped with his? Well, uh, look, I think there's a mutual respect, to be honest. I mean, I'm sure he's a political opponent and... You know, he's very good at the colour, the political colour and movement, and I guess I copped a fair bit of that. I mean, um, he didn't say too many nice things. I think Feral Abacus was probably the <laughs> nicest thing he, he called me. And warm Visiting letters. professor. I was delighted when he left politics that he ended up a visiting professor oh, at the yeah, University right. of New South Wales. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think there's just been mutual respect. And where we agree on policy positions today, where the journalists managed to find us, yeah. you'll find we quite often say supportive things. I mean, um, it wasn't a personality thing for me. Maybe that's probably one of my great weaknesses is that I never worried about trying to destroy the individual or the... I've, I focused on the argument, the yeah. substance of the argument. Paul, uh, the conventional wisdom among pundits, the press gallery, is that the uh, fight-back election uh, not just killed political transparency for oppositions, you know, they became small-target op opponents as a result of that election, but it killed economic reform. Is that really the case? No, certainly not. Um, people have argued that completely misunderstand uh, the nature of uh, the 1993 election. Uh, Keating won, and after that we saw the Hilmer competition reforms being introduced. We saw the introduction of enterprise bargaining. We saw a whole host of social and cultural initiatives from native title to putting the Republic on the agenda. But for the purposes of this argument, we did see an ongoing economic reform agenda under Labor, not the fight-back agenda. We then saw the reconstruction of the Liberal Party and Howard and Costello prevail in 1996. And again, we saw some very significant economic reforms being introduced that were endorsed by the public 
at subsequent elections a really fundamental point. Not much point introducing economic reform if in fact it's repudiated and you lose the election. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a complete misreading of history to think that the defeat of fight back was the end of economic reform. That's another story altogether. But there were two other consequences that, that we should highlight. The first is that Keating's campaign demonstrated the enormous power of the negative. And ever since then, for the past 25 years, we've seen the role of the negative in Australian politics to enormous effect mm. against a series of prime ministers, Howard, Rudd, Gillard, Abbott in particular. So I think in that sense, the legacy of fight back and the way fight back was destroyed um, has certainly been very damaging within the political system. And the other important consequence is that um, governments uh, and oppositions became a lot more cautious about what they said going into election campaigns. They shunned the idea of comprehensive blueprints after that. They were more uh, circumspect, uh, more, more careful, more cautious and more calculating. Miranda, um, one can debate whether a carbon tax was an economic reform, but clearly uh, Julie Gillard put it, ruled it out at the uh, 2010 election and then she enacted it. She was slammed by the public. And Tony Abbott, his 2014 budget, put in place spending cuts that he said he wouldn't commit to before the election. Um, this is part of what Paul's saying. I mean, how hard is it now for an opposition or a government to be transparent with the Australian people about serious reforms? Well, I mean, look, both those examples you gave were incredible own goals. So um, I, I think they're aberrations. I think that if you have a competent, um, you know, economic manager who, who does, like, say, John Key in New Zealand, who makes certain reforms like the GST, increasing the rate of the GST at the same time as giving people personal income tax mm. cuts, I think if you are, you know, if you have a... a a level of credibility already, and then you are upfront with the public. They will trust you, and they, if they think you're competent. But if they don't think you're competent, if you're behaving in an erratic way, um, or if your opposition has been so clever, as in the case of Paul Keating, as to paint uh, you as if you're um, incompetent, you know, he would say Paul Keating that they couldn't organise a. You know, to sell a, a raffle a duck at a pub, you know, raffle at a pub, um, or you know, all the insults that he he framed around the visiting professor, um, and then you overreach. You're not going. It's not going to work. So as John Howard showed, you have to be safe and incremental and bring the people along with you, and not frighten the horses mm. because any kind of economic change is going to upset people if they feel that they're going to miss out. And um, and you know in Australia we now have you know a large welfare state, and to try and um, reduce that requires a lot of tact and diplomacy, which the 2014 budget had none of. Uh, Troy, you, um, on that, following on from these general points, um, you're a former speechwriter to Prime Minister Kevin Rudd and you're a leader writer now for The Australian. This is what the editorial on the eve of the 2007 election, this is The Australian editorial. Dr Houston put out nearly 700 pages of detailed plans and fight back more than a year in advance of the election. In contrast, Mr Rudd 
has put out almost no detail beyond carefully scripted sound bites and policy statements that amount to a padded press releases with widely spaced type. <laughs> we saw the legacy of the Rudd Prime Ministership. What does all this tell you? Well, I mean, I think I would agree with Miranda and Paul um, about the impact um, of fightback having in terms of each side presenting cases for reform at, at elections. I mean, there's no doubt that parties now are craftier um, politically. They try to be smaller targets on policy. Um, there's no doubt um, that that is one, one of the legacies, the importance of the negative campaign as well. But, you know, we've had negative campaigns before Fight Back. I mean, if you go back and look at, for example, the 1943 election, um, with the with the sainted John Curtin. I mean, you might laugh, mate, but I mean, if you have if you have a look at what John Curtin was saying, I mean, he was accusing Robert Menzies and Billy Hughes um, and Arthur Fadden of of putting Australia at risk of invasion, um, and had totally unprepared the nation. I mean, the most outrageous things you could ever you could ever you could ever say about an opponent. Um, or you go or you look at Robert Menzies through the 1950s with the red hordes that were going to invade Australia and the reds under the bed and all that kind of stuff. So look, we've had plenty of scare campaigns um, in Australian politics before and after. Um, but the one about fight back was particularly important because not only was there a, a scare campaign against the GST in particular, but what John Hewson and the Liberal Party and National Party were proposing was to fundamentally change the structure of the Australian economy and society. Uh, I'll make the point again about Medicare, abolishing bulk billing for everybody who wasn't a pensioner or a concession card holder, abolishing the Industrial Relations Tribunal um, and the award system. Um, these were major changes that, that you know, tear up and change the fabric of Australian society and economy. Um, and although there had already been major economic reform, no party's ever gone back and adopted mm. those those policies. Um, and I don't think they ever will. So both, both sides have learnt from this as well. Yeah. Now, since you've retired from politics, John, you have often, all too often lamented how politics is indeed a short-term opportunistic game that's having a damaging impact on the policy development. But from an historical perspective, couldn't you always argue that at various stages since Federation, polarisation, partisanship have dogged our politics? Why, do you really think it's got so much worse in recent times? I think the intensity is much worse. And basically, my simple point is to ask the question, what is the end game? The end game today is politics. Not good policy, not good government, not solving problems, delivering solutions. And just look at the energy sector. We don't have an energy policy from either side. Mm. The bottom line, the outcome of the climate wars, as they're called, has just been, you know, electricity and gas prices a, running away. Isn't that just a healthy political debate, though? You call it a climate war, and you could say that about any number of issues, but isn't that just a good debate we're having? No, because I don't think either side is actually putting forward viable, sustainable, medium-term solutions to what today is a very significant problem. Well, the lack of an energy policy, the lack of a climate policy. Okay, let's bring it to the present because all too often we, we're told, and, and Paul, Ke Paul Kelly is a leading uh, exponent of this view in the Australian in recent times, that conservatism in this, in this country is going through a crisis. Paul, bear in mind in 93-94 many commentators were saying the same thing about conservatism and the Liberal Party. Uh, many people, after the loss of John Howard in uh, 2007, when the Liberal Party tore itself up over the emissions trading scheme, many commentators were saying conservatism was going through a crisis. What's so different about this crisis? Well, these examples you've given, Tom, are completely different. Um, what happened after the defeat of Fightback and Keating's victory in 1993 
was that the Liberal Party had to struggle with where they stood in relation to economic liberalism. That was the issue. The issue wasn't the nature of conservatism. The issue was the relationship between the Liberal Party and economic liberalism, or neoliberalism, if you want to call it uh, that way, in terms of fightback. And the party had to sort that out, and they did sort it out. And I've argued tonight, and I've argued on many occasions in the past, I think they sorted it out in a very satisfactory way under, under Howard and Costello. Now, in relation to this discussion we have about conservatism, look, the conservative tradition in Australian politics, going back to the 19th century, is conspicuously weak. Um, we had a liberal tradition in the 19th century. Then we had the emergence of the Labor Party. We've never had a party in this country called the Conservative Party, ever. And it's only in the course of the last 10 to 15 years that we've had this very intense debate about conservatism as an ideology. And I think there are many aspects about this debate which are extremely unhealthy, um, particularly those people who argue that um, uh, the way to revive conservatism in this country, and there are very confusing views about what they mean by conservatism, is to defeat the Turnbull government and put Bill Shorten into office, and this will be terrific in terms of reviving conservatism. Uh, so, look, I think that... Um, I, think, I think the other problem is uh, these people who call themselves conservatives, if you look at the agenda they want to impose on the Turnbull government, uh, that agenda often being, let's leave the Paris Accords, let, let's have more government spending cuts, let's revise the NDIS, Let's have an energy debate, coal versus renewables. This is a roll gold pact for political suicide. Uh, not one cabinet member in the Turnbull government would remotely consider this agenda, nor would any Australian government at the time. So you've got to ask yourself, well, what's the logic of these so-called conservatives and where are they coming from? OK, Miranda, how, how do you respond to that argument about this crisis in conservatism? Because at the, at the 2016 election, under Malcolm Turnbull, there was a significant chunk of Conservatives, something like a million, who didn't vote for the Liberal Party. How do you respond to all this? Well, a lot of them voted for other, you know, small parties. But, um, look, I, I totally agree with Paul that there is this sort of rancid rump um, of Liberal voters or former Liberal voters that um, I've dubbed the Delcons, as in delusional Conservatives, um, to my great detriment because they all hate me now and think I'm a lefty. But... Um, and, and they genuinely think and write and argue that the best thing for conservatism is to destroy the Turnbull government, as Paul just said, and bring Bill Shorten in, because somehow a conservative Liberal Party will then rise like a phoenix from the ashes. Um, and there's just no guarantee of that. Um, it's stupid, because what you would do is destroy the conservatives who are in the Liberal Party. But where I disagree with Paul is that I think that, um, and it goes back really to John Hewson and fight back, that you know the Liberal Party can't just be Vulcans. They can't uh, just um, try and rule from the head and not from the heart. Um, and and it's these the culture wars. Where a lot of people argue that 
all the Liberals should do is talk about economics. Well, it doesn't work. Yeah, but can, can I just be devil's advocate, though? Because John, many people were making these kind of arguments in 93, 94, 95, and John Howard won the next election in the landslide and the next three elections on the trot largely on a conservative centre-right position. So aren't you and Paul overstating your case? No, that's exactly what I'm saying. John Howard understood that what, what people deride as the culture wars is actually crucial. And, um, you know, as an example, for instance, uh, you had a, a supposedly incredibly socially conservative Prime Minister in Tony Abbott, and yet it was the Abbott government which launched and funded safe schools. Now, John Howard, when asked about safe schools, his instinctive response was, chuck it in the bin. But there is nobody mm, seemingly mm, courageous mm -hmm. enough, that is a courageous move now to say that. Mm -hmm. And the reason these things are important is because there is, uh, you said I just interviewed Jordan Peterson and he puts it better than anyone, that, that what, what is derided and seen as a second, second class issue, culture wars, is actually crucial to our, our survival um, as a culture because we talk about political correctness as if it's just some benign thing that, you know, we have to tailor our speech to be polite. But actually, it's this Orwellian idea that, and safe schools is part of that. Um, this, this, and Jordan Peterson pulls it back to its Marxist roots, which is, it's just the same old totalitarian ideology in sheep's clothing and it's trying to control our speech and the way we think about things and the natural conservatism, social conservatism of Australians, which is basically people want to have uh, their fa you know, intact family units and where they they are king of their family and they decide what their, you know, what their family does and how their children, their values are transmitted to their children. All of that is under threat. And if liberals decide that they are going to vacate that field, which they have done. Uh, and I would argue that Tony Abbott did that because he was so smashed up as a social conservative that he was convinced by the people around him that that was anathema to his political success. And so he just appeased and bent over backwards to the mm -hmm. left. Mm -hmm. And that is a real problem for the Liberal Party and they need to be courageous and truthful. John, just very quickly on the crisis of conservatism before we go to questions. Yeah, look, I, as I said before, I don't like labels. But if I have to define a conservative, I'd look to the uh, principles of the CIS in terms really? of believing... Really? We see ourselves as classical liberal. Yes, seeing small, 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 um, small government, l low levels of regulation, most effective use of market forces, and so on. And if that's a too conservative position, then why wouldn't you put a price on carbon, which is the most okay. cost-effective way of dealing with climate? Uh, we won't start on that one. <laughs> now, it's time for questions and answers. <laughs> Um, first question goes to Peter Hendy, who is a former head of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and uh, right behind you, Jane. And uh, Peter, of course, was featured uh, in those documentary series we just saw uh, as a senior advisor to Peter Reith, who was your shadow treasurer at the time. Peter Hendy. Well, well, thank you, Tom, and thank you uh, to the panellists. And uh, John Hewson, um, I think you set the, okay? the, the agenda for 20 years of economic reform in this country, and I think the way that Paul Kelly explained how after you, you, you wrote Fight Back and presented it, there was a reform that, that proceeded over many, many years. And can I just add as an observation, I think what Troy 
said was exactly right. It wasn't really the GST per se that lost that election in 93. It was the other issues about health. Uh, John mentioned about health policy. Um, it was about um, industrialations, very, very importantly in Victoria at the time. And it was about the, um, the, uh, the policy of reducing tariffs. And they, they were the things all combined that, that helped us lose that election, unfortunately. And I really am interested in this debate about conservatism, um, neoliberalism, but um, I want to ask a different question. And that is that to the eminent panel, um, the fact is that if um, John had won in 93, how much of, of fightback would have ever got through the Senate? Ooh, well, and so the question then is, do we actually need to still reform the Senate in a fundamental way for the betterment of Australian politics? Paul Kelly. Well, uh, to me, um, Peter, that's clearly a Dorothy Dixer. Um, <laughs> um, we really don't have effective national government in Australia. We've got all sorts of problems in the executive arm of government and we've got a dysfunctional parliament. No question about this. And um, when we look at the fate of the Abbott and Turnbull governments, Senate obstruction looms very, very um, fundamentally in this. And we do need to reform the system. Now, that's not going to happen because we know it's so hard to reform the Constitution. Perhaps the best we could do would be to look at a new voting system for the Senate. It's going to be impossible to reform the constitutional powers of the Senate, but we might be able to reform the voting system. But Labor is very resistant to this because Labor sees, I think, the current orientation of the Senate as being more beneficial to Labor in government and more damaging to the Liberals in government. So the chance of uh, a cross-party agreement on Senate reform, I think, is pretty difficult. Okay, uh, uh, Troy, quickly, yep. Um, Peter, it's a really important question. Um, and what one of the uh, footnotes, I guess, to fight back in the 1993 election is, of course, is that Paul Keating had promised to pass the GST um, if the coalition had have won the election. So I don't think the Medicare changes would have got through the Senate or the industrial relations changes, but the GST almost certainly would have been implemented. Um, and a 15% GST. A 15% GST. But the important thing to note about that is that when when Ke Keating just got up one day in Parliament and said he would pass the GST if Labor lost the election, what that did was very clever because it meant that if you, if you voted for the coalition, you would get the GST. Don't think that you can vote for, vote for the coalition and Labor will oppose it in the Senate. Labor will pass it. So it made, made the election a referendum on the GST. And there's a very important point about that, is that when Keating made that statement, the whole coalition front bench laughed and they, the hand side records them saying, bye-bye, Paul, bye-bye, Paul, you've just lost the election. There was one member of the front bench who had a stony look on his face who did not laugh. That was John Howard. And I asked John Howard about this when I wrote my book about Paul Keating. And Howard said he was astonished and he thought then and there that Paul Keating was such a formidable politician that the coalition may not win this election wow, after all. Wow, that's interesting, fascinating. Now, one, one thing I want to say about the Senate, because I 
I everybody says this that the Senate needs reforming. I think that's just so anti-democratic. It's like you know the people are revolting. The problem with democracy is the people, etc. John Howard had his best years when he didn't have control of the Senate, and when he fell apart was the last term yeah. when he had control of it. So the Senate, yep, I okay. think, imposes a discipline on the government, and it is up to the government. It's one of their KPIs mm. to manage the Senate. What did uh, Keating call the Senate? Unrepresentative swill, John? That's right. Yes, he did. Um, I just remember something Miranda just said about uh, John Keyes in New Zealand. New Zealand uh, Prime Minister. Yep. New Zealand Prime Minister and the success that you can have when you don't have states and you don't have an upper house. That's right. Although, although, although too hard to govern. Campbell Newman didn't have an upper house in Queensland no. and look what happened to him after a term. And they've got MMP, which is far worse. Okay, so next question. Keys. Jeffrey Lemon, who was uh, on the board of the Australian Tax Research Institute, he later became the chair, a member of CIS, a distinguished tax economist, and a distinguished poet who is now writing his memoirs. Jeffrey. Uh, well, uh, I've got a question which is at the end of this. Uh, I was the uh, tax correspondent for The Australian at the time, and I also wrote a couple of pages in uh, Fight Back. Uh, the, the, uh, the coalition policy had been to introduce uh, effectively a five-year five capital gains tax, after which capital gains tax on, on uh, transactions just disappeared you had to, once you held the asset for five years uh, then uh, no no capital gains tax I was brought in by John uh, and I said no no this is just going to completely undermine the whole capital gains tax system it's going to create all sorts of distortions and there was an, an enormous uh, resistance within the Liberal Party within the coalition uh, to uh, retaining Paul Keating's capital gains tax which is effectively what I was recommending. And much to John's credit, uh, he resisted all of this, and so my two pages uh, just went through. And uh, perhaps <laughs> that may be one reason why we still have a capital gains tax. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, uh, I think the main problem with Fight Back was uh, the long gestation period. It was released uh, far too early. Uh, and people were able to then have a go at it. That, in fact, happened with the Australian Tax Research Foundation. Uh, we had a, a limelight seeker. Uh, he's now gone to taxpayers' heaven, uh, Professor John Head, and uh, he uh, uh, organised a whole lot of people to uh, write uh, critiques of, of uh, Fight Back, and that was published, uh, a very selective version of it, written by John Head himself, uh, the critique was given headline uh, status by the Australian about two days before the election. I don't remember the exact time sequence. And that, I think, had a very uh, damaging effect uh, just a couple of days before the election, uh, probably more damaging than the, uh, the birthday candles. I've since watched that particular episode uh, where John uh, uh, confused himself about birthday cakes and the real problem was that he started talking about birthday candles and of course birthday cakes are sold without birthday candles. <laughs> John, quickly. But my question now is yep. uh, what lessons can we get from the fight back election in 1993 for the federal election, the next federal election and I'm, I must admit uh, very concerned uh, about it. I just think that uh, the present federal government is is proceeding along uh, with its head in the clouds and feet firmly planted mm. in midair. And 
that uh, what will happen is that they will be attacked uh, exactly as uh, as John was in 1993. John. Look, you'd expect me to say this, but I think we've had fun for 25 years playing short-term politics, and I think it's now time to focus on good government. And I think Malcolm's particular personal problem is that he came in with great expectations, whether they were justified or not, they existed, that he'd say, you know, that he'd fight for things like same-sex marriage or climate or tax reform, a host of other things that he was known to have supported. And uh, the fact that he didn't has seen a very ex rapid deterioration in his personal poll standing, and the party hasn't been able to recover in, what is it, 28 news polls. Having said that, um, I think if Malcolm were to start to move towards an integrated policy package across a number of key areas of public policy and to be prepared to get out and fight for that, I think the elected would cut him a hell of a lot well, of slack. It's his best chance to get re-elected. Well, on that did. note, Andrew Bolt today in the Herald Sun, Troy, says, Bill Shorten's huge tax grab on dividend income risks being his version of John Hewson's fight back. A bold policy document that gives the other side lots of ammunition. Hewson was destroyed by Paul Keating, but is Malcolm Turnbull a Keating? Well, what, what an absurd <laughs> statement to make. Um, the, the, the suggestion that Malcolm Turnbull is an ex-Paul Keating is, is so bizarre. It's hardly, it's hardly worth <laughs> co commenting on, but that's Andrew Bolt, I guess. Um, look, I mean, uh, look, there's no doubt that this current Labor policy um, has huge risks um, attached to it um, and s probably some flaws in how they have put it about, but we're not here to talk about that tonight. Um, the big question is, is can, can the government mount an effective campaign against it? Um, they've shown no sign of mounting any effective campaign against any crazy Labor idea for the last uh, four years, um, so I don't know that they're going to start now. Um, there's another quick point I want to make, which is... Which which is important to this debate about the crisis of conservatism politics today, and that is we tend to underestimate the recuperative powers of political parties. Who would have thought um, that just a few years on from the mess that was Rudd-Gillard, that Bill Shorten would be steaming towards the lodge with 28 news polls under his belt. I mean, no one would have, would have predicted that. And it's also worth noting that after the 1993 election, um, that John Hewson stayed on for some time as Liberal leader. The Liberals then went through Alexander Downer, and Keating told me he enjoyed watching Downer circle the drain uh, for, for, for 10 months. Um, and uh, John Howard was, was, was defeated by John Hewson in a leadership vote after the 1993 election. He was then overlooked when the Liberal Party chose Alexander Downer and Peter Costello famously said that he had to tell John Howard his time was up, uh, his future in politics was finished. And then, of course, John Howard comes back in January 1995 um, and uh, a year later... Um, the Liberal Party and National Party win a landslide victory. So um, who would have thought that that, 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 that that could yeah. happen? Circumstances yeah. change quickly in politics. Yeah. And leadership, I've always thought in my, in my career as a, as a writer and historian, journalist, leadership's the most important factor in politics. And if you can find the right leader that can bring the team together, outline a philosophy and a policy agenda and sell it, you can win, no matter how bad the party mm. looks um, at a point in time. So whilst Bill Shorten looks uh, to be steaming towards the lodge, I would not be so sure to predict uh, that he will win, win the next election, but we haven't seen any sign that the government seems able to arrest his speed. That's an optimistic note uh, in some respects about the policy reform agenda and putting it to him. Look, we are running out of time. Uh, Philippa, uh, please come up. Um, we at CIS are very honoured to have a great uh, board of directors, and so it's a great honour to um, welcome here uh, Philippa Stone, who's on our board of uh, directors. Philippa. 
Just sorry. That's right. Dr. Hewson, uh, Paul Kelly, Miranda Devine, um, Troy Branston, thank you very much on behalf of the CIS and all of us here for that fascinating discussion. Um, Australians declined to buy economic reform in 1993, um, despite you know having it explained to them, and despite um, the government then being tremendously, the then government being tremendously unpopular after the recession we had to have, um, and it, you know despite that, despite that um, <coughs> bite back could not be sold. Although, as Paul Kelly has said, it continued to condition. Uh, debate subsequently and paved the way for, for many more modest reforms which occurred under the, the Howard government. Um, I hope it is not impossible to sell economic reform to Australians uh, and that the outcome with fight back can instead be explained uh, by suspicion of a new tax, which is you know not a bad thing to be suspicious of, and, and the 1993 Medi-Scare. However, um, Australian, Australians will certainly never buy reform if we don't try to sell it to them. And so, you know, I guess it's to be hoped that those on the conservative side of politics will try to sell the benefits of smaller government, lower taxes, freer markets, including freer labour markets, um, and that, and that, you know, they are successful in doing so and take that forward. And that Australians buy buy those concepts, and and frankly, actually, in the social sphere, that uh, defence of our culture is also something mm. which will be vigorously sold. And I mm. think that is, that is a key theme that's come out tonight. But anyway, I think that's been a fascinating discussion. Can I ask you all to thank our panelists? Yeah. Thank there? you very much. That's great. <clears throat> Philippa, thank you, and I think that's a very good point about reform. Um, if the Australian people are going to be persuaded by reform, they need to be sold reform effectively, and that's where we come in. We're, we have been doing this at CIS for the last 40-odd years. Um, we don't receive a cent of tax dollars, no, no money from the public purse. Uh, we, we survive thanks to the goodness of our members. So uh, if you like what you've seen and you're not a member, please consider signing up. One bit of notice, uh, on Wednesday next week, we, our next event is going to be on population and immigration. Big debate in recent weeks, sparked primarily by a former Prime Minister Tony Abbott's uh, remarks about calling for immigration to be slashed. Uh, for Big Australia, we've got uh, the Distinguished Professor of Economics at ANU, uh, Glenn Withers, uh, as well as uh, Adam Crichton uh, from the Australian newspaper. And making the case for slashing immigration is the distinguished uh, former Productivity Commissioner, uh, uh, Judith Sloan, as well as a former Labor leader, Mark Latham. Wednesday, next week, here in this room. Hope to see you then. Thank you so much, and thank you, Paul Kelly, Miranda Devine, Troy Bramson, and the Honourable Dr John Hewson.